It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Traumatic experiences can rewrite our brains and change the way our body responds to external stimuli. Those involuntary alterations often make it difficult for people to live functionally and comfortably, and even to feel safe in their own bodies. Trauma is very much taught us that some people who may look great on the surface are hurting like hell inside, and some people who are hurting like hell on the outside may be incredible writers, poets, poems, etc., etc. So we're, we're very complex human beings. Through decades of research, psychiatrist Bessel van der Kolk has helped uncover the impacts of trauma in the body. He's also explored treatments that bring people back into their body and might help them heal. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Winter Words Conversation Series held by Aspen Words. Visit aspenwords.org for information on the 2023 season's remaining events, both in-person and virtual. And consider joining us in person this June at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Passes are on sale at aspenideas.org. Vanderkolk's 2014 book, The Body Keeps a Score, has been on the New York Times bestseller list for the better part of eight years, providing inspiration all over the world for treating a historically difficult human problem. The executive director of Aspen Public Radio, Breeze Richardson, interviews Vanderkolk about the book, his research, and how to apply his teachings on trauma to the outside world. Here's Richardson. I'd love to know more about who you wrote this book for. As I found myself reading it, I thought of clinicians, I thought of academics, I thought of patients, I thought of parents. As you sat down to write it, who were you writing this book for? Um, I have been on the the postgraduate committees at Harvard and Boston University for many years, and every year I used to ask applicants to the medical school, the psychiatry programs, what books have you read that inspired you to become a doctor or a psychiatrist? And in the last 10 years before I started my book, they said, I've never read a book that inspired me. Or the DSM, I go, the DSM inspires you? And so I basically wanted to write a book that if you're a young student, you go like, this is interesting. I want to spend my life understanding how the brain and the mind society fit together. I don't know if those are the people who are reading it. I think the main people who read it are people who have been traumatized, which is a very large number of people. A lot of people who have experienced trauma, but perhaps a lot of people who know someone who has experienced trauma as well. So I found myself thinking a lot about empathy as I read the book. Um, Can you speak to the role of empathy you you think in in healthy relationships and more broadly as a healthy society? Why is empathy important? (laughs) Why is empathy important? Because it allows us to collaborate and to make room for everybody and to... Uh, to actually recognize other people for who they are. And that, of course, is a critical issue, particularly in our society in the last few years, Uh, and particularly also in psychiatry, which has become more and more mechanized and more and more pill pushers rather than really understanding people. And so uh, in order to be a good physician, a good therapist, a good uh, doctor, you need to actually know what people are going through. Uh, Otherwise, you get frustrated and angry and 
nasty oftentimes, yeah. Uh, before coming out to Aspen Public Radio, I worked at Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas City and was intricately involved in a program with Kansas City University that brought medical students into the museum environment um, and did A-B testing and, and pre-post testing to really explore how you can, you can change how tolerant you are of, of others. You can influence that. Do you think reading books like this help us expand our capacity for empathy for, for difference? Not as much as a really good teacher would, okay. because we like to model ourselves on our teachers. And uh, I think medicine has changed to some degree and is becoming more, somewhat more attuned to patients' experiences, uh, except when you're traumatized, because then you frustrate your doctor by unexplainable symptoms, and then doctors, oftentimes doctors get very nasty with patients. Um, but, uh, you know, I have now 60,000 reviews on Amazon, and I read them on a regular basis, and uh, it sounds like people really feel understood and feel like, uh, and that I now understand my husband, I understand my kid, I understand my parents much better. And I think the issue of like understanding your parents is really important. Uh, and to really know, oh, my parents were struggling with this, or they came out of the Depression, or they came out of the Second World War, and that's why they had a little bit of difficulty being always nice to me. Uh, but it's, under, it's important to understand each other. Yeah. Yeah. So after the team at Aspen Words invited me to speak with you tonight, I asked them why this book? Yeah, why question. it was picked as a Winter Word series book for us this year. And they shared with me that it was because, in their view, this book has had a life unlike most other books. That although it was published eight years ago, yep. it has been back on the New York Times bestseller list, often at number one. It's pretty steady, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so people are fascinated by it. Yeah. What stories are you hearing? Why do you think that kind of endurance has been enjoyed by this book? Of course, you're asking the wrong person. No, I'm asking the right. My, they my, want to know what you think. Various country asked me, Doc, like um, my British publisher didn't do anything to advertise it, and I wrote to them. I said, "No, you should really advertise this book. You can sell fifty thousand copies at least." I said, "Only Ian McEwan sells fifty thousand copies." End <laughs> of the story. Half a year later. They write to me, we sold 50,000 copies. What do you make of that? I said, you bought a book. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. It was published in 2014 and remains a bestseller. Yeah. Um, has the pandemic been partially responsible for readers' interest in the way the body metabolizes trauma? Journalists often ask me that. I don't think so. I think our political situation is very, has been very much like a traumatizing situation for many people. And I think American politics really make people read it. But the truth cannot be heard. You can lie, you can... Um, that's, yes, that's yes. Like to work in, live in a traumatizing family. You cannot tell the truth, you cannot speak up, you cannot be honest. Mm. I think that's where it comes from, yeah. Again, thinking a little bit about COVID, I found myself noticing how much touch and physical touch yeah. are thematic in the book. Mm. Do you think anything's changed in that regard? I'd imagine not in the human condition's need for physical touch, but perhaps how we've gone about being willing to be 
in physical touch with each other or, or, or how we've engaged. I think of the air hug or the, the wave instead of a shake. Are we ha has the pandemic put us in a place where we've changed behavior in a way that's detrimental yeah. to just how important physical yeah, touch is? Not only the uh, pandemic. Of course, the growth of technology is that Facebook and Instagram and all those things really are giving you the same dopamine reward system of feeling like you're in connection with people, but you're not really in connection with people. And I think I'm extremely worried about our hiding behind screens. It's really nice to sit here with real people who I can sort of see. Uh, you know, uh, and, and our real sense of pleasure comes out of being in sync with each other. We're basically rhythmical creatures. Uh, our medical, psychiatric, and political system to some degree thinks about us as individuals. But of course, we are not individuals. We're all members of communities. We think about each other all the time. We worry about what people think about us. We are deeply social creatures. And I think um, screens taking the place of real interactions is very troublesome in regard to the pandemic, particularly for adolescents and young adults. Uh, and so a lot of journalists say, well, Dr. Van der Kolk, we have this collective trauma. I said, no, it's not a collective trauma. For me, it was not a trauma. Uh, I have good friends and a little bubble and I have a lovely wife and we are happy together. And so it is an inconvenience. But for your, your freshman in college, your senior in high school, man, that was hard. And if you're a nurse who deals with dying people, that was hard. So it is very diff different for different people. And I think the nurses were a good example. Like, so I get to medical school and you see a lot of very sick uh, patients, but at the end you're just a technician and you leave the care of your patients, most of all, to their family that comes to visit them. During the pandemic, people couldn't come to visit And the poor nurses had to be both family and nurse. And I've seen a lot of nurses who really went under because it was too, too much to bear. Yeah. And also some of my young students were hospitalized during the pandemic because they got too lonely and isolated. Mm. Yeah. But it's very different for different people. Yeah, I resonate with what you said about your own experience. Mm. I had young teen children. Um, we spent a year and a half together. Yeah. We watched films, we explored games, we did so many things that I yeah. think uh, I will look back on those years yeah. and know that we were in a position of privilege to and work remotely. And, and I mean, have right? Because the critical period of the development where they would naturally have gone to hell mom. Yeah. <laughs> my friends. They, they couldn't leave. To you. They couldn't leave. Uh, no, it's, great. it's true. Well, I wanted to ask you about parenting. So it, yeah. that, that's yeah. a perfect, perfect segue in the sense that I don't look at my teenage, now teenage children yeah. and, and see, uh, I think, um, I, I quoted from the book, you know, the idea of uh, being a reliable source of comfort and strength. Like my husband and I, who I would be remiss to not take advantage of saying in the situation, he's the primary caregiver who's mm. been the stay-at-home parent for 16 years. Um, I think we've provided that for our children. But my question for you would be, how can I expand my parenting efforts to help my children be more understanding of others who haven't had those same opportunities to master self-care and self-regulation? That's a big question. Like, <laughs> we've, we've got time. That is too abstract in a way. Like, 
Well, I hope you read the warmth of other suns with your kids. You hope you uh, have some people of other colors and ethnic groups over from time to time. Um, eat other people's food. Know right? I've been spending food. some time yeah. with the yeah. Intercultural Development yeah. Index. Yeah. And it, the, I think we sometimes think these are obvious things, but exploring other cultures, eating other foods, being around families and family structures that are different yeah. actually plays a really big role in helping children see the diversity of families. And, um, and I mean, I guess it can be as simple as teaching empathy and being empathetic of others, well, but there seems to be something more. Empathy. You have to show empathy. You have to show empathy. Yeah. Thank you. Experience empathy. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> Talking about things come cheap. Mm. I, I have hung around at Harvard for a long time. We can talk. But to change, you need to have an experience that's different. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying yeah. that. I think that's yeah. true. Okay, well, let's pivot just a little bit. Given who our hosts are here tonight, might I ask, who are your literary heroes, and did their work have any influence on you writing this book? Oh, of course. <laughs> like, we are imbued in our literary tradition, and certainly William Shakespeare knew everything, including everything about trauma. Incidentally, William Shakespeare was not the author of the plays, but that's a different story. <laughs> we won't go there now. Um, and who else, like uh, Philip Roth, like, like uh, you know, just endless numbers of people. Uh, yeah. I paid attention to or was taken by perhaps you evoking fiction and works of fiction, for example, or maybe it would be nonfiction, but like All Quiet on the Western Front comes up yeah. several times in the book as yeah. an example. Yeah. Um, when, I th when you think about works of fiction of any medium, do you think there has been more good or harm done in educating or exploring uh, the ideas of, around trauma and healing? Oh, I think books like Toni Morrison's books, for example, are very profound books to help people to understand things. I, I read The Bluest Eye well before I knew anything about trauma. And it just knocked my socks off. And to, and to novelists really can confront with realities that we don't know about, but we can read it vicariously sitting by our fireplaces and go like, oh, that's what it's like for them. And I think that actually the, the main containers of trauma, not scientific articles, but mm -hmm. our novels and our plays and our Netflix and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Well, music is also a big part of this community, and it appears to be something that has played a big part in the more innovative care around trauma. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of music in, in your practice or practices that you're adjacent to that you've seen music play um, a new role? Yeah, it's, it's very central. I was just talking to somebody who's here, who's about to go to the Berkeley School of Music, which is down the street from me in Boston. Um, and that, you know, after working with veterans, I really got to see a lot of people who were abused as kids. And so I started to hang out with attachment researchers who study uh, parent-child interactions starting very early on. Um, I was also somewhat involved peripherally with Harlow's lab with young monkeys and stuff. Um, and what you see is that the interactions between caregivers and their kids are basically rhythmical and musical interactions. So you, you speak motherese, and wherever, I've traveled a lot, and wherever you go in the world,
people speak the same language like this. Do do da do, oh my little baby. <laughs> and you move together and you sing together and that's universal. And that's really how you get your sense of identity of somebody matching you and moving with you. And language is much later. I think people grow, grossly overestimate language in many ways. And it's really about a body registering the presence and the comfort of other bodies. And so a uh, feeling of security really comes from synchrony with other people. Trauma is the opposite of being in sync. Uh, somebody assaults you and you cry out and you s scream and that person doesn't listen to you and so does not pay attention to the noises you make or the, what your body is doing. And at the core of trauma is very much a, a frozen or out of control body. And so getting people to be in tune with each other um, in my book I write about it, probably I learned more from Bishop Tutu about it than anybody else. I was an advisor at the Truth Commission in South Africa, and it was an unbelievably bad scene that you know, 40, 40 million black people have been oppressed by people who talk just like me. Um, and, uh, and so the Truth Commission came out of the lessons from India that once the oppression stops, people are going to kill each other. And so the whole issue was really, how, how do we, Tutor Mandala, uh, keep people uh, compassionate and quiet so they don't go and kill people? And that's what it was about. And so I traveled around with Tutu, and he would come to a small place, a smaller audience than this, in little townships, and they would sing together. And they would dance together and they would move together. And Tutu was such a joyful guy, so you really got that sense of... And then people would talk about what happened to them, and they would burst out crying and just terrible. And Tutu would cry with them, and he said, let's get up and pray together and move together. And I really saw uh, two things. One is how music and getting in sync with each other is so important. And the other thing that I've seen in my travels is that every society finds ways of dealing with trauma uh, like the first time I go to China, 1991, it's still a very poor, oppressed country, uh, but everybody does Qigong. And later on, I studied Qigong, and Qigong turns out to be a very nice way of calming your body down. Uh, so it's very interesting for us to also look at how other people in other cultures deal with this disconnection that, that comes with trauma. And we are all of our, our methods, actually. Um, and music is at the core. Music is the core thing that, that helps people to be together. Yeah. I told you that I stopped going to Quaker meetings because I just could not go to services without singing. <laughs> yeah. I love that. This, the other thing that came up in my previous conversation is that um, who understands this very well is the armed services who learned it from Prince Moros, Nassau, Dutch guy, who learned it from the Romans, is that if you get a bunch of angry, disconnected, weird adolescent boys together, they're no good as a, as a fighting force, but if you march together, and you sing together, and you get in tune with each other, you can, these guys become good soldiers. And so at the core of, of being an effective armed service is teaching people how to sing together and move together. Say more about um, the kind of what might be labeled broadly as alternative practices. Qigong, yoga. I know you talk about it in the book. Like, yeah. it's not fair to talk about those as other. So say a little right. bit more about that. So once you know how the, a little bit about how the brain works, and we have a lot more to learn, 
you, you don't call it alternative therapies anymore. Right? And if you really understand that 80% of the fibers of the vagus nerve run from the, above the diaphragm into the brain, uh, Darwin pointed that out already, and he says, in order to change the brain, you have to move the body. And you, once you understand that's how the brain works, then taking pills goes like, how you take pills? That's weird. I started off as a pharmacologist. And I was, used to be a very respectable person. I did the first studies from Prozac and Zoloft. Um, but, you know, uh, but for me, to some degree, although I'm not opposed to psychiatric drugs at all, uh, that to my, to my mind is as alternative. Mm -hmm. Going to a yoga studio makes perfect sense. I think a lot of people in this audience really appreciate yeah. you saying that. <laughs> Thank you for that. So perhaps we could put the DSM on the other side of the spectrum. And I really am taking advantage of my seat on the stage today to ask you a question I, I really personally have, uh -huh. which is um, so many things. You documented the process kind of behind the scenes about writing a, something like the DSM mm. and the, fo I'm going to not do this justice, but like the focus groups and the associations and the prepared briefs and all this work that goes to, to state that case, the case studies, the research, only to have like it completely dismissed mm. by the, the institutions that yeah. be. So do you feel like these numerous times that you and your colleagues asked for changes and your advice was ignored? Did you always know that was something you wanted to put in the book? No, actually, I was part of the team that put the, put the PTSD diagnosis together. In uh, the first place, but uh, in the year, like, uh, I'm, I'm so not going to do it justice. No, but, but you evolve. Huh? And yeah. so we create this diagnosis because we were working at the VA, we see Vietnam veterans, make a diagnosis for Vietnam veterans. We say, this is an extraordinary event outside the usual range of human experience. So psychiatry as a field had not a clue that a third of all couples engaged in domestic violence, that one out of at least five women gets molested before the age of 18. Like, the figures are staggering, and people have always turned a blind eye to that. And so as we are getting educated by our patients, we learn actually that it's very common and pervasive. And, uh, and a number of us started to work on really incorporating new pieces of knowledge. But then you run into other issues. Kind of, everything in life is political, of course, and you run into people who get their money out of certain diagnosis. You won't get a grant unless it, it fits in DSM. And so we, if you start writing about for treatments that don't fit into the DSM model, you can't get your research support anymore. Uh, so it, it becomes a deeply political issue, and I think psychiatry has been particularly d defective in actually looking at the reality of people's lives, in part because it is so easy to make money of pre out of prescribing drugs and not looking and not talking to people. Uh, so when I was trained, uh, I was at a very prestigious residency training program, uh, and so a lot of smart people came into it, and we were told by our teachers, uh, in the first year of your residency, you're not allowed to read any books, but you spend at least eight hours a day talking to patients because that's your main textbook. Mm. Uh, and boy, was I lucky to get that training. Uh, because the textbooks are always filled with nonsense, but your patients tell you what's really going on. 
<laughs> so that's really very much a legacy of my wonderful training I had. Yeah, yeah. So I think about the point in the book where you talk about physical health and that there was a time where we treated the lesions and the boils and then we learned about bacteria. Yeah. And we changed our practice yeah. in physical health. But then you way more eloquently, I should have written it down, um, than I'm about to do, say, basically, when it comes to mental health, we, we seem more than willing to stay in those dark ages and yeah. treat symptoms yeah. rather than the cause, yeah. the trauma. Yeah. Say more. For one thing, people don't say nearly enough, I don't know. Uh, that, should, that should be at the beginning, I don't know. And then we may give people little labels that begin to approximate more or less what they may be suffering from. Um, but uh, psychiatry has been particularly just stunningly um, unwilling to look at the complexity of the human mind and uh, what has actually been lost in the last 20 years is the study of the mind. There's a lot of biobabble going on. Uh, even today, people say, oh, uh, I've got serotonin. And you think if you say serotonin or default mode network or dopamine, that you're smart. No, to me, it means like it just means you, you know some biological terms, but you don't really know what it means. Uh, so people have substitute talking pseudobiology for mental processes. Uh, so I met somebody recently who has a child who cannot do abstractions. They go like, she cannot do math, she cannot do trigonometry, she, cannot, she can only do concrete things. It's like, that's fascinating. There's no diagnosis for it, there's no label for that. But for me, it goes like, what happens in that mind of that person who cannot combine abstract thinking with concrete evidence? And what didn't go there? But you couldn't get a grant to study that. But if you say, oh, it's because of serotonin. <laughs> <laughs> So because, in part, the DSM has been limiting in how much yeah. it's been willing to evolve and change, I think it was the DSM-4 that you guys really fought for oh, some and expansion and, and lost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how often today are we treating symptoms and not trauma directly? Uh, I don't know what everybody's practicing, but the stories I hear from people is, by and large, take a pill and come back in three weeks or three months or something. So how do we change that with clinical psychology's education uh, today? Change it by writing books like this. <laughs> Did you always, know, I mean, these stories go back to the 70s. Yeah. Did you always know you were going to write this book? No. no I wrote a whole well, what changed? Of, I wrote a whole bunch of books before that. But those books were written because I wanted to be respectable. So it's written in stultifying language and you know, difficult to get through. And I wrote this one with the idea that when you come to the bottom of the page, you want to turn the page, which is the secret of Stories a are a big part of this book, I think. It's yeah. something our fields have in common. It doesn't, yeah. You don't always have to have the facts or the expertise. Sometimes you need the lived experience. You need but to you know what start. a person with a name yeah. thinks. Yeah. No, you start the lived experience. And then you go like, I wonder what's happening here. And so every, every case history was for me an inspiration to learn, what the hell's happening here? How did this person survive? Why is this person still sitting in my office instead of having gone under? Uh, and so every, and I think that's another thing that's happened in our field is that there's the clinical field, there's the research field. And my center was 
one of the very few centers in the world where every researcher also treated patients and every clinician also learned research. And the two, field, the two worlds don't talk to each other these days. And so people don't learn from their patients anymore. Pretty bad. Yeah. Do you think our willingness to lean into telemedicine is going to make that worse? Into what medicine? Telemedicine? The oh, te screens yeah, again? Telemedicine make, will make it worse. What will make it better, if we can manage it, is psychedelics. I was going to ask you about that. This audience really wants you to talk more about psychedelics. Did you know that we passed a law in our last election I legalizing? Do, do, of Say more. They're very, very interested. So, multiple, multiple people have told me that. Get on this question. Good. Well, uh, of course, I'm a child of the 60s, and so I, I experimented with all that, and then became a very straight person, and didn't use anything for years, and at some point I got, what did LSD do for me? And I have a bunch of friends who are well-known scientists, and I asked my friends also, did you take LSD in college? And they said, of course I did. And I said, what effect do you think it had on your thinking, or your evolution? They said, I think it made me the scientist that I am, because I got to realize that the reality that I live in is a very small circumscribed reality, and that the overall world is much larger than what my little mind can contain. And so at one point, uh, Rick Doblin and Michael Mithofer asked me to run their study in Boston. And I was delighted because uh, what you, when you get traumatized, you also shrink your world. Have people who are traumatized become very constricted and try to not feel and try to not get angry and not, not try to get defeated. And they become literally physically and mentally uptight. And what we have indeed seen in our MDMA research is that when people go to MDMA, which is oftentimes not a very nice experience at all, it's not like, oh, let me get a little bit high, uh, it oftentimes brings back the stuff that you really didn't want to think about. Uh, but there's something about MDMA and probably ketamine and ayahuasca also, but it has not been studied, this degree of detail that allow people to go into very painful places and not recoil from it. And so what we see, uh, and actually I just submitted our paper on that. I think it's going to be an important paper. I think it's going to be the most important paper I've written in my scientific career, actually, where I talked about the mental changes uh, produced by psychedelics that allow you to see yourself with compassion. Having compassion for other people is one thing, but when you're traumatized, you have no compassion for yourself, and you think you're just fundamentally a piece of shit. And it's happened to me because I'm a terrible person. That's very consistent, and telling people it wasn't your fault really doesn't make a difference, because it's deeper down in the brain. And then when people t take psychedelic agents, something shifts and go like, I was four years old. I love this person. Nobody protected me. And you get to see what happened, you go like, boy, if I'd been there the way I am now today, I would have protected you, I would have taken care of you, your poor little thing, me, then, um, you see this really profound mental uh, transformation happening. Yeah. Do you think our wider society is going to continue on this trajectory of being more accepting? I'm scared to death. Mm. I tell my colleagues through psychedelic research, we are going to, through the honeymoon phase, and once it becomes all legalized, it becomes commercialized, and people will try to make a big buck on it, and boy, God save us. <laughs> 
But you guys have done okay in, in Colorado. Well, I don't know. We just I passed like it. How do you guys think we're it doesn't sound doing like well? It's gone to hell because you legalized. But I think that yeah. at least I, as I continue to um, learn about and explore the history of this community, um, yeah. that there's definitely been an appetite for innovation yeah. and experimentation. And I think it'll be interesting to see those two worlds come together. The world that's yeah. very comfortable. We've been practicing this for decades. But it's also Merging with legalization. Like, I'm even ambivalent about the legalization of marijuana. I'm glad I didn't have access to marijuana during my turmoil within adolescent years. It might have been too easy to dull whatever was going on. So I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about it. Um, Thank you. Yeah. It's almost time for your guys' questions, just to, to float that out there as a, as a reminder. Um, are there stories, so it's been eight years, I realize that's a, a long time, but so many wonderful stories. Are there stories you left out that you, in, in hindsight, think would have perhaps played a different role in telling these stories? My friend Stephen Cope, who wrote this incredible book called Yoga and the Quest for a True Self, uh, warned me before the book came out, said, Bessel, some of your best stuff will accidentally be left on the cutting room floor. And that indeed happened, but we're almost finished with our next book, in which we'll bring in the case histories. I've forgotten in the last one. <laughs> you know, I love that you shared that your academic practice was started in a space where your patients were your textbooks. Yeah. But say a little bit more about how that learned lesson we can apply to daily life, like talking to people and interacting with people and hearing their stories um, plays a different role in our learning than yeah. hearing from an expert or, or, or reading, consuming expertise. Yeah. And that's why All Things Considered is such a wonderful program, because your interviewers are so great and really digging in a very tactful way into very difficult materials sometimes. And I think we all need to hear those stories about what people go through, the story about David Crosby, uh, very interesting, huh? multifaceted, complex character, because who is just a drug addict, uh, and a great musician, and a great friend, and a great many other things. And so our labels tend to really lock people into a very narrow thing, while in fact uh, trauma has very much taught us that some people who may look great on the surface are hurting like hell inside, and some people who are hurting like hell on the outside may be incredible writers, poems, etc., etc. So we're, we're very complex human beings. That's why, like, that's why I like Shakespeare so much, because he really got how complex we are, huh? yeah. multifaceted. Yeah. Um, let's go back uh, for a minute when you said this idea of collective trauma and the, the pandemic. Do you think we're facing maybe awareness, if not actual realistic uh, difference of the scale in which trauma is part of our society? No. Somebody asked me that. They said, Dr. Van der Koppen, do you think so much trauma today as opposed to the past? I said, did you ever take a history class? <laughs> like, we are such a flawed species. And we have, I, I've been still looking for the, the society that figured it out. And so I had a dialogue with the Dalai Lama a few years ago and having a little naughty streak, I asked him, what did, did he make of the fact that the three worst genocides in the last 50 years, actually three out of the four, uh, were in Buddhist countries? So the Buddhists didn't solve it either. 
The Aztecs didn't solve it, the Mayas didn't, the Calvinists didn't, the Russians didn't. <laughs> we are a very troubled species. And, uh, and so, we, so I think there's something else going on. What I'm intrigued with is that our lives really today, 2023, globally in the US, are better than in many ways it's ever been. But there is something happening with the internet and authority and stuff that it's like the invention of Gutenberg's Bible, which gave rise to the, the Protestant uh, Reformation and 30 years of war in Germany and 80 years of war in the Netherlands. I think we're going through a similar cultural shift because of the internet and because of virtual reality. Because of global communications. Yeah, and access to, to whatever without filters. And I think we're living in a new society. And I think people are, are confused and, and befuddled by the new reality. And there's too much information. Yeah. I was having a conversation the other day with someone just to that point. Uh -huh. With some degree of uncertainty of what trajectory we're on. How long oh. will we be living through this reformation? Oh. Will the, it be short or will it be 100 years? It took the Spanish about 300 years. Yeah. yeah. Like, now these are very complex issues, much larger than what any of us can answer here. Yeah. Well, I have more questions I can keep asking, but I also really want to turn the micro over, microphones over to you. Um, as you see, there's microphones here in, in each aisle, and if you could queue up uh, to ask your questions, we do have a virtual audience joining us tonight, so the microphones will allow for them to hear um, what you'd like to say as well. Please go ahead. Thank you, doctor. Wonderful, wonderful book. Um, I'm a psychotherapist here on Aspen, and I particularly was encouraged by your last part of the book where you really were a big proponent of EMDR. Could you please, and I'm sure many people in the audience already know about EMDR, but could you explain to the lay public how EMDR works, because most people are confused by it, but I've heard some wonderful, wonderful outcomes from it. Yeah, see, I think EMDR is a wonderful treatment, and it really started me into exploring many different things because EMDR doesn't make any sense. Huh? Uh, it's a very strange technique. You ask people to call up what they remember seeing there, what they heard, what they were thinking, but you don't ask them to speak. Because the moment you speak, you tell a story that's for the audience. Speaking, as my mentor Pierre Genet pointed out, Speaking is always a social act. You cannot speak honestly to somebody else because you always worry about how they respond to you. And so EMDR is basically a nonverbal technique where you evoke the memory of the trauma and then you ask people to follow your fingers as you move your fingers in front of people's eyes. How crazy can something be? It's a bizarre thing. And like everybody else, first time I heard about it, I said, this is as crazy as can be. And then some of my patients start coming back who had it and some people in my clinic started to practice it. And so I got the first and only NIMH grant to study EMDR. But for me, EMDR was the beginning of an exploration. It should not be the end. Huh? Mm -hmm. So after that came yoga, and after that came theater, and after that came music, and neurofeedback, mm -hmm. which is still grossly underrated and psychedelic. So there's really many different things that we can do. But EMDR. Uh, was was very important for me for two reasons. One is, this is the first time I saw people getting completely cured. Yeah. Yeah. Not bad. Uh, <laughs> and the second thing is it is a bizarre technique. And I thought maybe bizarre is, doesn't get in the way of things being effective. 
And so I started to think that people like studying yoga, putting your butt in the air and twisting your body into a pretzel people for trauma. Turns out that yoga was more effective than any psychiatric drugs that we have studied for PTSD. Thank you. Thank you so much for your question. This side? Oh, okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Awesome. Um, I was wondering what forms of psychotherapy you're most excited about in, in healing trauma? Uh, in terms of psychotherapy, um, something that has largely disappeared, hypnosis, for a hundred years with the treatment of charge of trauma, until the false memory, people started to say you implant false memories in people's minds. You know, hypnosis sort of disappeared, sort of. Um, psychotherapy, I would say, an internal family systems approach yes. uh, would be fundamental, I think. And what I talked about earlier is that what you see is not what you get. Just because somebody looks like an angry person, it doesn't mean that all of them are angry. And if somebody looks like a really nice, competent person, it doesn't mean that you know every part of them either. So it's, it's, uh, and what IFS really pointed out to us is that we have parts that start off uh, to help to manage very difficult situations. But for example, you may learn that starving yourself makes you feel better has some real root in reality, or cutting yourself. A lot of people cut themselves, 7% of the population. And when you go to a mental health professional, you say, you should stop it. Stop cutting yourself. I would never say that to people. I say, what does the cutting do for you? And where did you learn it? And how was it helpful for you back then? And how is it helpful for you right now? And then our journey with my patients would be, how do we discover something that is less damaging to you than cutting yourself. But I don't try to run somebody else's life. I say, you shouldn't cut. It's their choice. But by becoming conscious of it, where it comes from, and really respecting where it came from, because it really helped me to survive my childhood. And now let's see what else we can explore to do. Awesome. Thank well, thank you. you so much. I'm an IFS practitioner. So oh, well. So I was happy ah, you knew that. I was going to give this answer. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, you. so much. Yeah. Over here. What percentage of humanity do you think is traumatized currently? This article came out in Pediatrics uh, three years ago. It said at least half of all children in North America, Asia, and Africa uh, are traumatized, meaning five billion. Uh, over a billion children every year, basically. <laughs> like, the figures are stunning. Yeah. What do you think is the lifetime prevalence, then? Uh, you know, it depends on how you define trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, so so you, uh, you cannot give an accurate figure for that. Is your father working all the time and coming home and not talking to you, is that a trauma? Not strictly speaking, but it makes a difference. Uh, does your mom, knowing that you're getting sexually molested by your brother or your father, and not doing anything about it, um, is that a trauma or is that just not being seen? So, so you, know, you, you cannot nail that down by, by simple things like that. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Right over here. Hi, my name is Allison. Thank you for writing your book. Um, I'm a lawyer and work with children in foster care and there's a lot of trauma there. And yeah. I was wondering if you have any thoughts you can share on systemic reform in terms of mental health care that's provided to children oh boy involved in child welfare <laughs> that systems. is really it is a great question that we should all think about because the foster care system is incredibly expensive mm -hmm. 
and uh, very few kids really benefit from it. It's a huge issue. Uh, my friend Harry Spence, who just died this past year, was the head of uh, Child Protective Service in Massachusetts at one point, and he gave a talk, and he looked like Abram Lincoln. He had run the department for a long time. And basically he said, this is a system that is impossible to run and impossible to fi fix. And he called a standing ovation. <laughs> and so it is, it's impossible. Like, you take kids away from their caregivers. That act is a trauma. Mm -hmm. But you need to decide to take kids from the away from the parents because the parents are beating them up or doing terrible things to them, which is also a trauma. So you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And then if you're in the foster care system, you are likely to be a reactive, aggressive, impulsive little kid, and then people get very mad at you and you get moved to a different foster home, and then you lose the school district that you went to and your peer group and the church that you went to. It is horrendous, it's one thing after another. The one thing, and that was actually the last study I did before I started my psychedelic lab, uh, is that neurofeedback can be incredibly helpful for those kids. And actually, that's the last research paper I wrote about neurofeedback. And uh, I wish I could teach the Child Protective Services about neurofeedback, which I think is, for a public health point of view, more powerful than even psychedelics would be. Thank because you. we can regulate kids' brains so they can become calm and focused and learn, actually. And when you're terrified all the time, you're shut down and you're scared, you cannot learn. Right. Well, and helping kids is important because then you're affecting an entire life. Good. Yeah. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you for your work and thank you I for your question. I hope you do it. <laughs> yeah. Over here. Hi. Um, so kind of going off of that question, I'm a mental health clinician that works inside of a high school. And so I'm just wondering you know, if trauma work is appropriate to be doing inside of schools and if there's different modalities that you would recommend for that. Because um, I've gotten pushed back before of like, we don't want to be re-traumatizing our kids during the school day, but also it's important to help them yeah. heal. Again, that's a very good question. Um, I was confronted with this a few years ago when I, I mainly moved to the Berkshires, uh, Aspen East, I would call it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, People asked me to give a public lecture in a very big auditorium, and after that, the school principals of our county uh, asked me to get together with them and say, can you start a clinic for traumatized kids? And they said, how many of your kids have uh, relatives who, have, who take overdoses? How many of them have seen domestic violence? And they would say, at least half of our kids. And I said, in that case, you don't want a clinic. You want to be a trauma-informed school where every action that you commit as a teacher is trauma-informed. And that means that you get to know your kids, that, you get, that the kids have a voice, that the kids can talk about themselves. And so my, my big goal in life, and I'd like to, love to say that, uh, because maybe someday it will become true, is that in every school from K to 12 in America, People learn the four R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, and self-regulation. And that from kindergarten on, you get to know who you are, how you feel, find words for your experiences, be able to communicate to other people, learn how breathing and moving and singing and tossing a basketball can change your relations to yourself, and that there's laboratory experiential exercises throughout the year, every week, 
maybe several times a week. And learning about yourself should be as important as passing a test of mathematics. Thank you for your question. Hi, thank you so much. So I had a friend call me today, actually, who went through a traumatic event yesterday in a yeah. an acute traumatic experience. And um, I didn't know what advice to give her in the moment today, what she can do right now so that it doesn't settle in or so that, um, I don't know, just to make it better. And I didn't know what advice to give the her. So big, I'm wondering. The first defense against trauma uh, like Oprah Winfrey and my friend uh, Bruce Perry wrote a book called What Happened to You? And I think that's an important question. The equally important question, who is there for you? Mm. Mm. And uh, Because some hor horrendous thing happens to you if people are with you, believe you, hold you, nurture you, you can regain a sense of safety. Uh, so the most important, when, when there's a disaster, the first thing you do as a disaster intervention team is to set up a phone bank or Zoom links so you can talk to the people who you feel safe with and who you love. That's the single most important thing, uh, uh, having somebody who can hold you, lie down, not necessarily talk about it, but just let, have that body calm down. Mm. I wouldn't be surprised that Skiing from the top of Ajax to the bottom might also be good for you. <laughs> yeah, I know she was going to visit me and she's canceling now. And I said, what? no, she was going to come here and visit me and she's canceling now. I said, no, come, experience the healing of the mountains, you know. Uh, but thank you very much for your answer. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. How about be there for each other? Yeah, and, and, exactly. And allow them to really, and allow them to fall apart. Right. Feel uh, uh, because. We tend to feel very helpless when people fall apart. And one of the things you learn as a, as a therapist, it's all right. Mm. You don't have to stop people falling apart because they'll find a way of stopping, uh, seizing being fall apart. But if you start pushing them to not make you feel uncomfortable, then you really interfere with the, the healing system. Mm. It's perfectly all right people, for people to cry all night. Yeah. Yeah. It bothers you as a roommate, mm. but maybe they will need it. You know? Thank you so yeah. much. Thank oh, you. I love that that's all advice. We don't have to be PhD clinicians to follow. Like being there for each other. Oh, absolutely. I think we have time for maybe yeah. one or two more, and I see a lot more than that queued up, so I want to be transparent. Hi. But uh, maybe we can get a few more in, about five minutes. Uh, hi, Bessel. Hi. Um, I'm a professor of educational psychology, as you know, and a former high school teacher, but I was severely abused by a, a physically abusive alcoholic father. I found that the teachers pushed me away, didn't want to, yep. just kept me away. When I became a high school teacher, I was trying to be empathetic to other kids, and I found administration and other school people saying, don't deal with the kid, don't do that. I, had, I yep. can't tell you how many principals yep. told me, don't tell them you were abused yep. as a kid. And now as an educational psychology professor where I'm training teachers, I'm getting the same feedback. Can you under, uh, give me an understanding of why I'm getting such pushback about don't talk about trauma in the education system? I, I, I would just say, yeah. that's piggybacking, my question goes right to that, that I'm a mental health clinician, and I am very curious these days about your stance on self-disclosure and how it relates to empathy and the treatment. It's interesting, interesting. No, <laughs> no, but these are very good questions. No, I don't. I've never been a teacher in a school, 
So, you know, I treat patients. And so that's very different because I deal with people who are very self-disclosed. So the subtlety of your system, I don't quite get. So I, I could not advertise myself as an expert, but I would say disclosure is dangerous. Mm -hmm. You don't really say, I was raped or, or my brother molested me, except for maybe you can go to a teacher who will send you to a school psychologist. I think that's stuff that's pretty scary to, to right. reveal. And in certain age groups, that might really damage you. Mm -hmm. But you getting around the circle and getting everybody to know everybody and to listen to everybody mm -hmm. and to be aware of everybody is terribly important. Uh, so I think you can give a better answer to your question than I could. You did that to me once before. <laughs> Thank you, Basil. Thank you. Let's get a few more in. Question over here. Um, mine will also be brief because I feel like you just addressed it. I'm a, a teacher also in the Valley with a bunch of others. Um, shout out to Aspen Words for inviting teachers and also for the work that they do at the schools. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Yep. But, you know, the school that I work at, Bridges uh, High School, we have a lot of um, adolescents that have been through a lot of different things. And you just spoke really well to um, the, way, the changes that schools need to be making to be more trauma-informed, and we do a lot of that at our school. Um, and, but one of the things that I've noticed is like a lot of the kids that have come to us, the, the traumas that they've experienced actually came from school. And like, so I guess the, the flip side of the question of what should schools be doing is, you know, what have you seen, like, how, how do we stop schools from, from harming uh, kids, like, especially in the younger years? Yeah, I know that's a very global question, of course, which I cannot answer uh, because that's not the world I live in. Uh, but what I'm struck by is that my parents sent me to a very nice school. And we had animals to take care of, and we grew stuff, and we wrote plays, and we did music. And nobody ever had to ask me to do my homework because when you're a safe kid, you're curious, and you want to be very good at what you're doing. And that's mm -hmm. every kid wants to do that. Once you get traumatized and hurt, you shut yourself down. A scared child cannot learn. And so the issue is of how you can help the kids in your classroom to feel safe would be the most important question. Because if you're not safe, you, your mind is not open for experiences. And punishing people can shut them up, but doesn't make, help them to learn. And so uh, the question is, uh, if, if I were doing experimental school, I would start every day with yoga or qigong to just get into your body and to be calm and quiet. And then I would have a neurofeedback office somewhere so that if you continue to be hyper aroused, you cannot learn and you're fidgety, uh, we don't give you a diagnosis and give you drugs, we help you to calm your brain down so you can actually learn and pay attention. And um, of course, a very core issue is that if you go to a nice school in the US, you have music, you have theater, you have dance, you have athletics, but the poorer you are, the less re uh, rehearsal time you have, the fewer plays there are, the fewer, less music there is, and you need to do something that gives you a sense of pleasure. Mm. And pleasure is continuously left out of all educational curricula yeah. and mental health as if pleasure were irrelevant. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, I feel like that's a whole nother hour. Oh, that would be so I think great. Several more hours. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank with, you so much. With remorse for those who are, are in line and, and won't have a chance in this setting, at least, to ask um, Dr. Vanderkolk your questions. I want to thank you, Dr. Vanderkolk, for being here with us tonight and to thank everyone uh, for joining us this evening. Vanderkolk is a clinician, researcher, and teacher in the area of post-traumatic stress. His number one New York Times bestseller, The Body Keeps a Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Treatment of Trauma, transforms our understanding of traumatic stress. The book reveals how trauma rearranges the brain's wiring and shares innovative treatments that reactivate brain function, including neurofeedback, psychedelic therapy, yoga, and body work. Vanderkolk is also the founder of the Trauma Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Breeze Richardson is the executive director of Aspen Public Radio. She began her career as a news producer with WBEZ in Chicago and then remained at the station to produce for the nationally recognized radio program, StoryCorps. Previously, she worked as director of marketing and communications at the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas City, Missouri. If you were inspired by this conversation, we invite you to experience the Aspen Ideas Festival in person this June. Register today at aspenideas.org. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Words team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.